The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Let's pray again. Loving Father, again, as we come and stand before your word, and Father, we pray that it would speak to us. But Father, as we would attempt to explain and expound the words of Scripture, that the Spirit of God would take those powerful words. And Father, we pray as he did with those men standing there, that he would bring conviction to those of us who need to be convicted. Father, we pray that he would bring comfort and reassurance and joy to those, Father, who are struggling and downcast. Father, we pray that through the preaching of the Word of God, you would take us and shape us and make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we ask you for your help yet again, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. You remember that scene that Peter is... speaking to those Jewish men on Pentecost morning, and many of them had gathered in Jerusalem at that time, knowing that Daniel's 69 weeks were all fulfilled. And they believed the Messiah was coming at any moment, and they were waiting for him in Jerusalem. And that strange sound they all heard, which was the coming of the Holy Spirit, and it drew them all to come and hear and find out what it was all about. And as they came, they're looking at these rough, trady, Galilean fishermen and tax collectors, and they're all out there speaking the wonders and the mighty works of God. And they're looking at each other saying, what's this all about? What does this mean? And one of them, the rough, tough, burly, foot and mouth, uh, Peter the fisherman, stands up and begins to speak. And those men were all there, and they all wanted a Savior. They were looking for their Messiah to come. They wanted their Messiah to rescue them from Rome. They wanted deliverance from their political enemy, Rome. They wanted to be set free to live as they always had. We shouldn't really judge them too much because in all reality, our culture, our society is looking for a Savior, not a lot different. What type of Savior is our culture looking for? You can see as we look at movies and books and television, the heroes of our time. We want a Savior with a complex character, massive, impressive power, but yet a flawed and failing personality. We want a Savior who is able to save us from every external threat and problem, but one who is totally uninterested in demanding fundamental, personal, and internal change. We want, our society wants, rescue without reformation. We want to continue in sin with someone strong enough to free us from all the consequences of that sin. But what we want is not what we truly need, is it? What we need is a Savior who can remove God's wrath against us. We need a Savior who can deal not only with the awful, unending consequences of sin, which is an an eternity in hell. We need a Savior who can deal with sin itself. And Peter unveils this Savior to them and to us with seven descriptions. And we looked at the first for last week, and so just to recap, and you can follow along in the note sheet in your bulletin there, this Jesus is the man displayed as having God's approval. 
He was truly man, born of a virgin, doing miracles and signs and wonders that pointed to God and Christ's redemptive purpose and work. Secondly, this Jesus is the lamb delivered by God's plan and foreknowledge. He was betrayed by Judas. He was denied by Peter. He was abandoned by his friends and countrymen. But it was all part of God's definite plan and foreknowledge. Thirdly, we saw that he is, this Jesus is the sacrifice killed and crucified by us in verses 23 and 36. We are all responsible for Jesus' death either directly as those who were shouting that day in the streets to crucify him, or by the fact that it was our sin that held him on the cross. We're all responsible. And we saw last week that he is this Jesus, the Messiah, raised up by God because death had no hold over him. And the last three we want to consider today. In your note sheet there, you'll see the outline for today's message, that he is the King of kings, exalted by God. We'll see that he is the Savior, both Lord and Christ. And we will see that this Jesus forgives sin and pours out his Holy Spirit from verse number 38. Last week, I asked you to do think about four things as we went through the message, four applications to think about. And I want to repeat them this morning and add a couple of things. I want you, number one, from verse 22, I want you to hear these words. To listen, listen well to what God is saying to you in your heart. You'll hear me pray as I often often open a sermon that God's voice would speak to every heart in a room and my voice would hit the pulpit and just stop. And what you would hear is God speaking deep in your heart. Hear these words. From verse 41, I want us all to receive these words. Take them as your own. Don't let them go in one ear and out the other. Don't let them just bounce off and have no effect. Receive them as your own. And thirdly, I want us to repent, to turn away from sin, stop doing the things that displease God. So as you're sitting here listening to this message this morning, think about what's going on in your life. Think about what you're doing that's displeasing to the Lord and how you can repent of those things. And the last one is to be baptized. I want you to ask you these questions. Two questions. Do you, do I, deep within our hearts, in that space where nobody else can go but you and you alone, do we have peace with God that comes from the forgiveness of sin? That's not a question anybody can answer for you. It's only a question you alone can answer. Do you have that peace that God alone can give as you know that you're forgiven of sin? This one's a little harder. Maybe, maybe not. Have you and have I submitted ourselves? Are we submitting ourselves, our mind, our heart, our body, our soul, to the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting everything to Him? Because the Bible makes it absolutely clear that He is either Lord over all or He is not Lord at all. Listen, we do not come to Jesus for salvation. That should shock you. What I said was, we do not come to Jesus for salvation. What we do is we come to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. There is nothing in Scripture that has the idea that we come to Jesus and we make Him Lord at some other time. He is the Lord and we come to the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. There's no other way. 
So I want to ask you this morning as you sit and listen, are you submitting? Have you submitted everything in your life to Christ? I know we all have things that need to be brought and given over to the Lord Jesus Christ, to surrender to His Lordship, that He might use us even more. So I want to go through those last three descriptions of the Lord Jesus that Peter gives us. So number one, this Jesus is the King exalted by God. And we can see that in verse number 36, I believe it is. No, it's actually up in verse 32 and 33. Let's read there. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He is exalted to the right hand of God. Jesus, in order to be exalted, first had to endure great humiliation. Jesus had glory with the Father all through eternity past. And Jesus willingly, voluntarily, for the joy set before Him, laid aside His visible glory like taking off of a coat. In order for the definite plan of God to be fully completed, He laid aside His glory and He clothed Himself in humility and He condescended to take on human flesh and blood. God the Son, Creator of all things, took on mere weak humanity. God the Son and the Lord Jesus Christ condescended to walk amongst His creation. He was humiliated by His creation, and He also humbled Himself to the point of death, even the death of a cross. We know the story of the Gospel, that He was tortured and crucified and killed, and yet He was raised again from the dead. The reality is all mankind hated him. They tried to rid himself, themselves of him in the worst possible way, in the most violent and horrific forms of death. They tried to get rid of Jesus. But God the Father loved him and raised him and exalted him to the highest place of all. Our Lord Jesus Christ is exalted. He possesses the highest place. He's been given the highest name, a name above every other name in all of existence and all of creation, the name of the Lord Jesus. The Old Testament Scriptures predicted it. Isaiah the prophet writing said in chapter 52 and verse 13, Behold, look, see, pay attention. My servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Jesus isn't just lifted up a little ways. He isn't just given the highest office in the land. He is exalted as head above all things. Heaven and earth, spiritual, physical, everything. Christ is exalted above it all. Jesus Himself promised His exaltation in His trial before the high priest and the priesthood. Caiaphas put that question to Him. I charge you to tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. And Jesus responded in Matthew 26 and verse 64. He said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. We don't realize what a great statement Jesus was making to Caiaphas that day. He was claiming and declaring himself to be God. Seated the right hand of the majesty of high. That's the place that only the high priest of God could ever consider sitting. 
That's his place. And Jesus was saying, listen, I'm the one and I will be greatly exalted. God the Father has exalted our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, he did not exalt himself. It was the Father who exalted him. In fact, Jesus made the point, when you come into the banquet hall, and you see all the banquet tables set up. And you ever notice you go to a wedding banquet and you have the, the front table. It's got all the best china and all the nice linenware and all the best places. And as you work your way from the front table, as you get steadily towards the back of the room, the, the tables get a little more rickety. The chairs get a little more dodgy. And the, the china and the silverware isn't quite as polished and nice. And so what we often do is we exalt ourselves. We go up and we try and find a place at the very front, at the nicest place of all. And Jesus said, when you come to the banqueting table, don't put yourself at the highest place, lest you be told to go and take a seat further down, but rather to sit in the lowest place, that the master of the feast may come and ask you to be seated at the head table. Well, Jesus has set the perfect example, hasn't he? He humbled himself, took upon himself the form of a servant, a bond servant, a slave, and reduced all the way down to death on the cross, the death of a common criminal, and God has taken him in a sense, in a beautiful sense. The Father has come alongside and taken Jesus' arm and said, come and sit in the highest place of all, and has seated him at his own right hand. Jesus did not exalt himself. The Father exalted the Lord Jesus. And because he is exalted, every power and every authority from every realm is now subject and beneath him. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 22, Paul is speaking to the Ephesians and describing the prayer he has for them that the power of God may be at work towards them. And he describes that power like this. He says, it's the working of the strength of His, that's God, His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Christ from the dead and He seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Brothers and sisters, listen, every world government is subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so long as they do not operate in that subjection, they are operating in rebellion against God. Every demonic power is subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so long as they continue to act against His authority, they are in rebellion against Him. Every angelic power is subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every elder, every deacon, and every member is subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord over all. And the reality is, we have to get one thing straight in our minds. He is Lord. Not He will be. Not He might be. Not, you know, if I feel like it, I will make Him my Lord. No, He is Lord. And whenever we act outside of that submission and subjection to Him as Lord, we are acting in rebellion against the living God. He is Lord. Every father in every home is subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the implication of that exaltation, the implication of His being given the highest place and the highest name in all the land is this. Every injustice, 
every unfairness, every undeserved cruelty that is enacted by one against another, there will be an accounting. Those dear people in Sri Lanka who are enduring the bombings, the folks down in Christchurch are enduring the bombings down there, the thousands, hundreds of thousands being killed in the Middle East for their name and their, and their faith in Christ, it has not gone unnoticed. God did not forget. God sees. And those acts will be dealt with. God will bring justice. God will right every wrong. He will judge every sin. And fundamentally, when others sin against us, it's not really us. It is Christ against whom they sin. So be encouraged, brother and sister. God will bring justice and deal with all sin. Some of you live in homes where there is unfair and difficult leadership. You say, what, in the church? Yeah, in the church. And I don't know of any in particular. I'm not speaking about a specific situation, but I know it does happen. And listen, whether it's poor parenting or poor leadership or whether it is children in disobedience and refusal to submit to parents' authority, there is a higher authority than that's in that home, and that's the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, and God will deal with every rebellion. God will deal with every father and every husband who leads harshly, unfairly, with a domineering hard attitude. God will deal with every elder who leads with a domineering, overpowering attitude. The Bible makes it clear. We are servants, and we are to live our lives in submission to the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is exalted. He is Lord. Not He will be. Not when I make Him. Not when I submit. He is Lord now. And how you live displays that submission to Christ's Lordship in your life. And I assure you that God does not forget. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 to 11, describes how that Jesus was willing to lay aside his glory, to humble himself, to suffer abandonment and separation from God, to endure the cross and despise the shame. And because of this, God the Father has given Jesus Christ a name that is above every other name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus will for all eternity be truly God and truly a man. And yet think of this. With the scars of His suffering and crucifixion eternally engraved into His body, but they're no longer shameful scars. I had a friend who, who at one point in his life had all kinds of crazy tattoos all over his arm. And, well, both arms and actually most of his chest and half of his back. He's everywhere, tats. And he came to know the Lord, and he was so embarrassed. Every time he came to church, he had his sleeves all the way rolled down. And it was the middle of summer, and he came in. He had his sleeves all the way down, and had his, his collar buttoned all the way to the very top, that uncomfortable last button that I always leave undone. He had it all the way to the top. And I said, Johnny, what, what gives, man? It's hot. And he said, yeah, I know, but, he said, but you don't understand. I said, well, what don't I understand? And he sort of rolled up his sleeve a little bit, and I could see all these tats with bizarre symbols and swastikas and all kinds of things all over his arm. 
And those scars that were left on his arm were shameful scars to him. He was embarrassed about them. But the scars that the Lord Jesus bears in his wrist and in his feet and in his side and in his back and across his brow, the puncture marks, no, they're not shameful scars. They're scars of glory, the scars of a conquering king who has defeated sin and death. Jesus is exalted. And he bears those scars. And listen, brother and sister, we who are in Christ must be prepared to endure the humiliation and suffering that He endured. We who would follow Christ must be prepared for suffering. We who rejoice in hope of the glory of God must also be prepared to rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and the love of God Sorry, doesn't put us to shame because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Spirit that was given to us. That's Romans 5, 2 through 5. God the Father has given Jesus Christ the name that's above every other name. He has exalted Him. Why? Because He was willing to suffer and be humiliated to the point beyond anything we can imagine. This Jesus is... The king exalted by God. Notice, secondly, this Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Notice in Acts 2, 2 verses 33 to 36, Peter again calls uh, David's words into play. Actually, verse 34 and 35. He says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. I think you can safely reword that like this. The Lord, that's the Father, said to my Lord, the Son, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And then Peter makes this great statement, this drive-home point. He says, let everybody know for certain God has made Him both Lord and Christ, whom you crucified, or if I could rephrase that, whom we crucified by our sin and our rebellion. Peter skillfully drives home that sin that they and we have committed, that we crucified Jesus. Sin is both rebellion against God and sin is to disobey God's law. What's, Jesus, what's Peter saying? He's saying that Jesus is God. He's saying that He's Lord, Master, and Ruler, and so on. And he's saying, listen, you crucified God's King, God's priest, and God's prophet. He is the highest above all other beings, and we did not obey Him. Those men listening that day, they did not obey Christ. They did not honor Him. They didn't exalt Him. They didn't worship Him. They didn't glorify Him at all. Rather, they, and in a sense, we treated Him as the absolute lowest. And now this Jesus is ruling and reigning until all his enemies are his footstool. Those are the most triumphant words. Think about it. You crucified the king, and now he is exalted and he is reigning over all. And I said a moment ago that the name of Christ demands something from us. God the Father has given him a name above every name, and at that name... It demands something from us. In Philippians 2, verse 9, I'll read the verse again. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that, purpose, 
At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The pronouncement of Jesus' name as Lord Jesus Christ demands. It demands that we bow the knee and confess that He is Lord. There's a scene out of a movie. I, I can't remember the name of the movie now. It's, it's an Asian setting, and there is an emperor or an empress, and all these guards are standing before her, all lined up in their, all their costume. It's probably set 150, 200 years ago. And as that little princess, who is the highest in all the land, as she steps out of her little carrier and the, the, the robes are pulled back, the, the veil is pulled back, and she steps forward, and all the guards, in a split second, they realize who she is. Every one of them, in, a, in almost an instant movement, they drop it onto their knees, and they bend their heads, they put their heads on the ground, their hands are out. It's an instant thing. As soon as they realize, that's her, down they go. It's immediate. And what he's what Peter or Paul is saying in Philippians 2, and Peter's trying to get across the point here is the pronouncement of Jesus' name as Lord Jesus Christ, it demands that we bow the knee to him and we confess that he is Lord. So first we must bow the knee. Here in our text, Peter describes Jesus as seated, and literally he says, Until I make your enemies your footstool. God makes Jesus' enemies his footstool. To be a footstool for a seated king. And the picture I have in my mind is a king up on a throne. And a great big royal throne and his royal robes come down and hang past his feet. And the throne is up on a raised dais. And all I can see is the knees and from there down. And the one that comes up to Jesus and he bends down on his knees and he puts his face all the way down to the ground. He covers his head. And the king lifts and puts his feet up on the back of that person. That's the idea there. He will make your enemies your footstool. You will rest your feet on the backs of your enemies or on the necks of your enemies. That's the most abject form of humility for one to take before another. But notice something else here. There are two options for how we become his footstool. We can become voluntarily his footstool, or we can become involuntarily his footstool. Take your Bibles. Let's flip over to Philippians 2 for a sec. Philippians 2 and verses 9 to 11. Notice what he says in verse 10. He says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth. In verse 11, he says, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What's that mean? Notice what he also says. Um, notice in verse 10 again, the last part of the verse. He says, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. What's, who does that leave out? Nobody, right? But what Peter or Paul is saying in Philippians 2 is, listen, every single knee, bar none, whether you're in heaven, whether you're on earth, or whether you're under the earth, every single knee will bow. Every single tongue, whether it's in heaven with the angels, whether it's on earth with men, or whether it's under the earth, in hell, 
Every single tongue will confess, will declare, will shout that He is Lord. And the point is this, those who voluntarily of their own free will, I'll use that term, their own free will will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will do so in heaven, rejoicing with Christ Jesus, rejoicing in their Savior, rejoicing that they have been glorified with Him. But all those who refuse, who will not confess and name Christ as Lord and Savior, will not bow the knee. They will do it, but they'll do it from under the earth. They'll do it from a place of condemnation, justice. Nobody will go to hell. I've said it before. Nobody will go to hell saying, I was framed, it's unfair, I will demand a new trial, or anything like that. In fact, the reality is all those who are cast into outer darkness will stand there as they're being pushed into outer darkness saying, He's Lord, He's right, I'm wrong, I'm sin. This is where I this is what I deserve. There's two options. The difference is everything in the world. Take your Bibles and flip over to Ephesians 2 for a sec. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 8. I mentioned last Sunday night we're talking about justification and how it is that God forgives sin. And one of the things that studying theology and studying the theology of salvation, studying the Scriptures over and over again, looking to see how God saves and the way in which God works, it over and over and over again drives home the point to me in my own studies that it's God's grace. It's God's kindness. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 8. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God it's grace But notice what he did. First, he made us alive. Then he raised us up. And then he seated us with him in the heavenly places. In other words, that place of exaltation, that place of glory that Christ occupies, he will invite us to come and sit beside him. There's a story in the Old Testament. When I mention the name of the main character, you might wonder why I would use an illustration like this. But Absalom, the son of the king, you remember him? And Absalom sinned against, and he, he killed his brother, and he was off in exile. And after a period of time, uh, David the king brings him back. And Absalom, for utterly selfish and utterly sinful reasons, he does something that's amazing. It's a similar picture of what Christ does for us. For totally good reasons, Christ obviously does it for us. But look at what Absalom does. He stands in the gateway. And he waits as the people are coming in, and they're going to bring their problems and their issues before the king because in the courtyard or the gateway of the city, that was like the city courts. And often the elders of the city and the king would sit on the side of the courtyard at a gateway, and as people would come forward, they would bring their problems and issues towards the king and the, the uh, elders of the city, and they would hear the case and give a verdict. And Absalom sitting there, and people would come forward, and they would see Absalom, and they would know, this is the king's son. And they would immediately do something. They would go to give obedience or go to give uh, offer 
I'm trying to say, humble themselves before the king. And they would step forward and they would bow down to the ground and Absalom would do something. He would step forward and he would grab that young man or that person. And as they would go down to bow, he would lift them up and say, no, no, come aside and, and give me your problem. And the wonderful thing is that when we come to Christ, I'm wondering what's the connection. Good question. When we come to Christ and we humble ourselves before him and we say, you are my Lord. You are my Savior, and I go to bow the knee. It's almost as if Christ steps out and puts his arm underneath ours and says, no, 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 no. Come and sit with me. Come and be seated beside me. Paul says uh, in Ephesians 2 there, he made us alive, he raised us up, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places. Back in Acts chapter 2, What Peter is saying, listen, house of Israel, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And what happens there as they're hearing all this, they're hearing about how he is the Lord, he is Christ, and they're realizing that they have done the wrong thing. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And what's happening in that moment is they were experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit was already at work and He was making them realize He was driving home to their hearts and impressing greatly on their hearts, You've broken the law. You're a sinner. You're guilty of the death of an innocent man. That's what they're all realizing. They had broken God's law. The guilt that left them marked as rebels against God. They were truly God's enemies, as are all of us who disobey and break God's law in defiance of God. They knew, as Peter made it clear to them, they knew this Jesus is the man approved by God. They knew They knew Peter had just made the point to them and they all remembered that they had crucified and killed this innocent Jesus. They knew this Jesus is infinitely more than any ordinary man. He is truly man and truly God, sinless and pure. But this Jesus in grace had now poured out his Holy Spirit. They knew. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. They knew that God only poured out His Holy Spirit on those He sovereignly chose to speak and act for Him. But Jesus had poured out His Holy Spirit on these bogan country Galilean fishermen, tradies and tax collectors, all the bottom of society. And these men are all looking around going, Galileans? And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God is pressing home to their hearts and their minds. They have the Holy Spirit. The words they're speaking are absolutely true. This foot-and-mouth fisherman named Peter, as he stands there to speak the gospel, he's saying things that we know are true. He's Peter saying, you yourselves know. You saw Jesus. He was approved by God. You delivered Him up. You demanded and cried out for His crucifixion. You yourselves know all these things. And you ever know, you ever get caught in a situation where someone comes to you and they got something against you and they start to go, and you did this and you did that. And they look at you and they go, and you know you did it. And in your heart, you're going, oh man, you can feel that finger 
It's like it's 10 feet long that's pushing right through your chest. You know. And they are cut to the heart. They're pierced right through to the heart. That's the conviction work of the Holy Spirit. Every single one of us who's come to faith in Jesus Christ can remember that moment when all of a sudden you realize with tremendous clarity you're a sinner, but God is a great Savior. You're a sinner and there's no hope for you outside of Christ. You remember that moment? I can still remember it. Like it's yesterday. It was 30 plus years ago. Still remember it. And that convicting sense deep in their hearts, the Spirit of God is impressing and pushing into their hearts and reminds, and their conscience is siding with the Spirit of God and saying, yes, it's true. We know we did those things. And so they ask the question that reveals. They don't even try and hide it. They ask the question that reveals their very heart condition. They say, brothers, what shall we do? They did not deny their sin of convicting an innocent man. They did not attempt to remove or reduce their sin and guilt. They did not seek to blame their sin on somebody else. Didn't try and say, well, you know, my mother never hugged me enough as a child, so I'm flawed and broken. Well, you know, my father never affirmed me, approved me, so I'm flawed or broken. They never gave any excuses to justify their behavior. They simply said, what shall we do? What do we do? Because they realized that Peter was right. They don't seek to deflect their sin onto somebody else. They sought for the way to correctly respond. What shall we do? And it brings us to our last point. This Jesus forgives sin and pours out His Holy Spirit. What then is our response to these truths? As the Jews in Peter's day asked, what must we do? Peter gives them two commands and two promises. He says, repent and be baptized. Two commands for forgiveness of sins. Now, as you read that, go back to that verse. Uh, he says in verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I'm going to stop there because you need, that needs to be explained. If you misunderstood that, you could say that baptism is required for forgiveness of sins. And we know from the rest of Scripture that's not the case. But how does it work? We have to realize that baptism has nothing to do with receiving forgiveness. Baptism is not a requirement for salvation. If it were, that would be a work that we have to do. It would make salvation partially dependent on a work or some action, some thing we go through in order to achieve that requires us to do it. That would eliminate the whole idea of grace because now we're doing something in order to be saved. Repentance... I'm going to see this in a sec. Repentance, which includes faith, is what God requires for the forgiveness of sin. Baptism is only the outward display of the inner reality. We saw that a couple weeks ago with Rosemary and Peter and Jeff going through the tank in baptism. It was an outward display of an inner reality. So the next question is, what does Peter mean when he says, repent of sin? The biblical concept of repentance is this. It's a radical turning away from sin and anything which hinders my wholehearted devotion to God and simultaneously turning toward God in faith and in love for God and obedience to God. 
So first of all, first of all, faith, sorry, repentance includes faith in God. And you're saying, wait a minute, they're always described as separately. Well, yes, but you got to think about it like this. Repentance is a radical change. It is a change from faith in myself or faith in some other system of belief or faith in some other so-called deity or God or something else we worship. It's changing from that, turning away from faith in myself and turning towards faith in God. It's a change from faith in something else to faith in Christ and Christ alone. We turn away from sin in faith that God will accept us. We turn in faith, trusting God to keep His promises of forgiveness and peace and being filled with His Spirit. God says, come. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's a command and a promise. And in faith, we turn away from looking for rest and peace and anything else, and we turn completely towards God, and we go towards Him, trusting Him that He'll keep His promise, and when we get there, we'll know that joy of forgiveness and peace with God. We turn toward God, seeking forgiveness from Him. We ask Him for forgiveness. A little side note, I've probably said it before, but it's worth saying again. Parents, teach your kids to ask for forgiveness. Do not let your kids understand that saying, I'm sorry, is enough. Because it's not. It doesn't mean the same thing at all. I'm sorry means I feel, ba I feel bad for what I've just done. And we're glad that you feel bad, but that's not the point. You need to seek forgiveness. Will you forgive me for what I have done to you? you it, puts the, it puts the balance back on the person who has been wronged. So we, in faith towards God, we seek forgiveness from Him. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, <clears throat> excuse me, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So repentance includes faith in God. So when Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, they understood that that repenting was a changing to faith in God. And my question to all of us, are we trusting in God? Are we trusting in God? Or are we still hanging on to some self Dependence, some self-righteousness, some legalistic method of works and doings that we think will somehow make us right with God. Or are we throwing ourselves completely on God? We're standing before God saying, I have no other claim whatsoever. If God is going to let me into heaven, I have one claim and one claim only, and it's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Are we trusting in God? Secondly, repentance includes love for God. I turn out of love and a deep desire to have Jesus Christ. I see in Him more than just a Savior who will save me from wrath. I see in Him the most wonderful, the most beautiful, the most glorious of all persons. Absolutely perfect. And I want to have Him. I want to be alongside of Him. I want to walk with Him and talk with Him. I want Him to speak to me and help me understand all of life. I want Him to give me those Give me himself. 
to learn from him, to follow, to walk like he walked, to live as he lived. It's love for Christ, to know Christ and to be with Christ. Paul said, I count every single thing that makes me something as absolute rubbish. He used a worse word than that in their language. Human refuse is everything that means something to me in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Brother and sister, do you want to know Christ like that? You know what the hard, sad reality is for many of us? We're content with a distant knowledge of Christ. When Peter says repent, he says turn away from your sin, turn away from yourself and turn towards Christ and in love for Christ, seek Him out. Do you love God? You know, we all say, oh yeah, we love God and we do. Let me ask you another question, maybe not so easy to answer. Do you love God more than you love your sin? All of a sudden, not so easy, is it? The reality is, brother and sister, that's what it means to love God. It means to turn away from my sin, to turn away from doing the things that I love doing and turn away, turn towards the God whom I love more than I love my sin. Do you love God more? Repentance also includes obedience to God. I turn in obedience. It is a command that God who is Lord has made upon my life. He says, you must repent. God now commands all men everywhere to repent. It's a command to be obeyed. And I turn in obedience to that command, but loving, willing, voluntary, I love to obey the Lord, so I turn around to do quickly what He desires. Obedience towards God places His commands, His desires, and His requests above every other interest I have. Obedience is the mark of one who is no longer a rebel, but is now a true son or daughter of God. By the way, it is not a moment of obedience, brothers and sisters. It's a lifetime of obedience. You say, we never do that. We'll never be able to do that perfectly. You're absolutely right. You can't. And we were looking at this last week, this whole idea of justification. The fact that Christ's righteousness has been applied to us and covers up and shields us from God's wrath in that sense. All of His righteousness, His right standing, His right doing, His right thinking, His right attitudes, everything has been applied to us by God's grace. But coming out of that is a desire also to go with Christ and to please Him and to live for His glory, to live to honor Him, to live to obey Him. So let me ask you the hard question yet again. And I'm not just asking you, I'm asking myself because there are issues in my life. I'm, I'm not here because I got it all figured out. Don't ever think that. I'm here because I'm figuring it out alongside of you. My role is, is to speak these truths. And because I'm speaking the truths, God will hold me more accountable for them than even He'll hold you. That's the absolute truth. And I'm saying these things because I'm challenging my own heart. What is my heart love? Do I trust God more than I trust myself, more than I trust other things, other people? Do I trust God? And I do. And I find over and over again, brother and sister, as I, as I stand before the Lord, the man who came or Jesus spoke to him and said, do you believe? And he said, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. 
In other words, I'm believing, I'm trusting you, but there's still unbelief and, un- and distrust there. Help me to get beyond that. And we're all together encouraging one another to trust the Lord more, to obey the Lord more, to love the Lord more. So let me ask us all the question, are we striving with all our heart to obey the living God? Because, brother and sister, it's so easy to slip back and say, well, you know, I've given him 80%, but I'm just going to keep this 20% under my arm for myself. It's so easy to slip back. Brother and sister, are you striving to obey God with all your heart? Peter's second command is to be baptized. And we looked at this last week. That baptism is a display that changes, that shows, sorry, baptism is that sacrament, that ritual we go through to display the change of heart that's on the inside. If we've submitted to repenting of sin and following Jesus Christ as Lord, let me ask the question, have you followed the Lord in baptism? Well, let me ask you another question. Okay, that's an easy one to answer. It's a yes or no. Let me ask you another question. For all of us, baptized or not, or not are we living the baptized life? Because going through those, that tank is getting wet and coming out the other side and getting dry again. It displays the reality that I have died to my sin. I've died with Christ. I've been buried with Christ. And I have been raised to walk in newness of life. So as you step up out of that tank, let me ask you the question. Are we living, are we living the baptized life? Or are we literally going through the tank and turning around and going right back to living the way we used to live? Because let me tell you something, on the authority of Scripture, if you consider salvation to be a momentary thing in which you trust the Lord and you go right back to living exactly the way you used to live, you are not saved. That's not a very popular thing to say. But it's absolutely true. Brother and sister, it's a lifetime of following the Lord. I'll fail. Yes, you will. So will we all. And we'll pick ourselves up and we'll seek for God's forgiveness and we'll carry right on behind walking with the Lord. But salvation, real, genuine salvation, is not a momentary thing to go back to live exactly the way you used to live. It's a real thing that starts here and carries on all the way through the rest of your life. Peter says, repent and be baptized. So yes, repent of sin and yes, be baptized, but also live the baptized life. Live walking in newness of life that you have just shown us all that you have. It doesn't stop there. It starts there and carries on from there. I asked us all to do several things as we listen to this message. Let me ask you the question now. Did you hear the words of Scripture? Did you receive those words and make them your own? Do you know the peace and joy of forgiveness from God? And Brother and sister, have you submitted to God in every way that you can, or are you still holding something back? I'm sorry to poke your conscience. Actually, I'm not. I'm glad I'm poking your conscience because my conscience needs to be poked too. 
And Peter's words were so direct and so pointed, and the Spirit of God used them to put his long finger into their hearts and pierce their hearts and say, you know. But brother and sister, there is forgiveness. Look what he says at the end there. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When we come to Christ and repent of sin, trusting Him, believing in Him, following Him, He gives us that tremendous sense of peace that we are forgiven. He takes and He applies all of your sin to the back of Christ. And Christ has borne it on the cross and God has said, it's enough, no more. And He counts us forgiven in Him. Do you know the joy and the peace of forgiveness deep within your heart? That same spot I mentioned earlier where nobody but you can go. Do you know it there? You can fool everybody else. You can sing the hymns with weeping tears. You can pray the prayers. You can read the Scriptures. You can go to Bible school. You can do all those other things. You can get baptized and carry around with you that gnawing sense inside that something just isn't right. I plead with you, doesn't matter what's gone before. Think about now and think about what lies ahead. Do you know that forgiveness deep within your own heart? Did you hear the words? Did you receive them? Do you know the peace? Have you submitted to God in every way that you can? Or are you still holding something back? My last question this morning as we before we stop and take a few minutes just to sit quietly before the Lord is this. What would the Lord have you do in response to this message? What's God laying on your heart? I can't speak for you. I can speak for myself. I know God has been really challenging me about some actions and some attitudes in my life in the last couple of weeks. And I'm asking you to stop for a moment now. We're going to take a few minutes like we did last week and just sit in total silence. We're going to ask, I'm going to ask you to pray quietly to yourself and ask you to ask God, what would He have you do in response to what you just heard? Maybe there's somebody in your family or your life that you want to pray for. That's great. Pray for them. But ask God what He would have you do. I don't want these messages just to be a time when we sit and listen to a long message and go home with no change. I want God to take the power of the Word of God and impact us deeply to change us and make us like Christ. Let's take some time. I'm going to come and close in a minute and then we'll sing another hymn.